0: Hello, I'm Kernan Mannion, and you're listening to a podcast from Physician Interrupted. This is the first of a three-part series on The Matrix of Clinician Distress. It was broadcast originally on September 7th, 2021. This is part one, The Matrix of Clinician Distress, an overview of the psychological phenomena Adversely Impacting Physician Well-Being. Recently, there's been a lot of media reference to burnout. If you're a physician, you may even be burned out on the topic. But in many pieces, the terms burnout, compassion fatigue, and moral injury are used interchangeably. Even further confusing is the mentioning of trauma and PTSD, grief, and the clinical mood syndromes of major depression and generalized anxiety disorder. And too often, these seem to imply that all such distress is a manifestation of mental illness, a fundamentally incorrect notion. Burnout Compassion fatigue and moral injury are not interchangeable terms. They are distinctly different phenomena in the matrix of clinician distress. It's bound to be confusing for the general reader. However, the mix-up is understandable as these phenomena often occur together, leading people to believe that they're just variable presentations of the same syndrome. They're not and this three-part article aims to clarify what each is, how they differ from one another, and why knowing the distinction is key to helping clinicians resolve them. For those of us who coach or treat physicians and nurses grappling with these syndromes, it's critically important to distinguish amongst them. If you don't recognize them as separate, albeit often co-occurring entities, then your approach to helping resolve clinicians' distress is going to be of limited success. One or another element of their distress is going to remain unnamed and unarticulated, or worse, mistreated, and left so, it will continue to do its damage and adversely impact the clinician's well-being. Note I'm using the term clinician here to group together all who are direct providers of health care, with a particular focus on physicians, mid-levels, and nurses. Of course, there's a whole team of direct care providers, such as respiratory and other medical therapists, social workers, psychotherapists, pastoral counselors, and many others. Please consider clinician as shorthand to include them all. Part one, this part, offers an overview of the landscape of stress to which clinicians are subject. So that one can begin to appreciate their complexity, I start with a scenario. Many clinicians are familiar with it and explain how clinicians actually experience the distress as it occurs and aggregates. The scenario encompasses a range of symptoms of psychological experiences that often occur together. Doing so will help set the stage to show the challenge and importance of teasing them apart. We'll then more fully drill down on each of the syndromes in Parts 2 and 3. Part 2 delves into three of these psychological phenomena, which for convenience sake might be referred to as syndromes. Keep in mind I'm writing this not as an academic paper in which one has to be extremely precise in laying out exact criteria. Rather, this essay is this physician coaches clinicians' a practical translation of the experiential phenomenology and its psychological vernacular and the components of the discrete syndromes which occur in the universe of clinician psychological distress it's as much a desire to assist the distressed clinician and his or her coach or therapist as it is to help the general reader understand these often confused phenomena. By convention, calling something a syndrome generally implies illness, and therefore a medical malady, calling for a diagnosis of some sort. Here, however, I I want to use syndrome in a looser way, simply connoting a clustering of symptom manifestations that together comprise one's understanding of that phenomenon. My reason for deviating from the conventional notion of syndrome and illness is that once we label something as a diagnosis, then we fall prey to medicalizing that phenomenon and thus caught in that mindset now having to initiate a medical treatment. Part three is devoted to the remaining syndromes of the clinician distress matrix. I explore the the remainder of the distress syndromes, grief, acute stress disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and the affective syndromes of depression and anxiety that are frequently mentioned in association with burnout, compassion fatigue, and moral injury, and which also erroneously imply to the naive reader that they're interchangeable. By the way, I will try to loop back here and Once I've gotten that Part 3 published, I'll insert links into the article so you can read them all as a series. But, you know, forgetfulness happens, and should you not see the links, uh, please feel free to nudge me. To be sure you capture them all, it might not be a bad idea for you simply to sign up for the Physician Interrupted newsletter on Substack here, and you'll get notified as soon as the next piece comes out an era of distrust. We live in an age of issue overload and urgency. So many catastrophic events, so many demands, abundant fears, whether about the stability of our jobs, the well-being of our families, the safety of our communities, or the world as a whole, it all weighs so heavily on us. People who do people work of some kind are at high risk of burnout. The more urgent the risk, the higher the degree of caring, the greater risk for your becoming burned out. If you're a professional in a field that is people work oriented, and one where there are high stakes in the provision and outcome of those services, such as in healthcare, You're at increased risk of burnout. You're continuously under immense stress simply due to the high-intensity nature of the work involved in providing care. And, of course, you're not exempt from all the other stress bombardment that preoccupies us all. Now, take that compounded stress and add in the challenge of dealing with an unparalleled life threatening global epidemic caused by a lethal, highly transmissible, and self mutating invisible pathogen that occurring in a setting largely unprepared for that lethal outbreak. And the stress level goes off the charts. The phenomenology of clinician distress. Here's a typical scenario. Now, this is a composite of experiences gathered from discussions with numerous clinicians. While I myself experienced all of these in spades, I might add, in my clinician's role more than a decade ago, and my distress symptoms concur with so many others, I did not have to contend with being A frontline physician providing care to patients suffering from COVID-19. That has added a whole new dimension of stress that is nearly inconceivable in its adverse psychological impact. Your experience of danger. Today, as a clinician, you're not just treating patients who happen to have a life-threatening illness, for example, a terminal cancer and doing so as though you're safely removed from their critical illness. Rather, you are at extremely high risk of being infected by those patients' rapidly progressive illnesses, and even more so than the non-clinician because of your ongoing daily exposure to continuous streams of newly infected and highly contagious people. Your Personal loss and your vicarious loss. You may have lost close frontline colleagues to COVID, and you're likely to have had to attend to patients who were gasping for air due to the severe pneumonitis and the ventilator resistant nature of the stricken lungs. It's a powerful psychological trauma to witness a person die from an acute, rapidly progressive disease. At that, one causing severe air hunger, and one that you cannot effectively treat with the limited means currently available. As a clinician, you don't just observe the air hunger from some removed clinical stance. You feel it. As humans... Suffocation is one of our worst fears. You find yourself breathing with your patients as if to help in their respiratory effort. Early on, you may not even have had sufficient resources to protect yourself or to assist your desperately ill patients. Empathic stress. You face additional empathic stress as you are the one who maintains visual comforts them and near the end of their medical survival battle tries to arrange contacts with their family member to allow a final visit at that limited to a video conference with you holding the computer screen while your weakened, dying, short of breath patient and their loved ones say their heart-wrenching goodbyes. Doing this caregiving work in these circumstances is so immensely stressful it's almost impossible to convey in words. And yet the psychosocial support services needed to help caregivers debrief and decompress, to compartmentalize and make sense of their experience, are largely absent. In fact, they've really never been in place. And so you, as a clinician, must contain your sadness and fear, your hurt and anger, and your sense of helplessness and failure in the face of a relentlessly aggressive and lethal infection caused by an invisible pathogen as light as air that continues to evolve into more malignant strains and threatens to immobilize all of humanity and cripple the very healthcare system itself. Your moral duty. As a frontline clinician, you may find yourself torn, believing, on the one hand, that as you entered this world of healthcare after extensive training, it is your moral duty to remain on the front lines and treat this flood of desperately in need patients. Yet, on the other hand, you wonder. If indeed that is your moral duty, or if you're being too heroic about it, and that you also have a moral duty to protect and take care of yourself and your loved ones. With no place to really process this, you remain torn and you default to hunkering down and facing the challenge. Trauma and PTSD Even absent a pandemic, such intensive work can be psychologically traumatic and leave one filled with sadness and worry and brooding preoccupation. But in an epidemic where the stream of desperately sick people and the demands for 24-7 care by dwindling teams of highly trained caregivers is continuous, This psychological stress takes an immense toll. It's virtually no different from being a warrior pinned down in combat with an unseen terrorist. The caregiver is a frontline combatant in a deadly war, fighting courageously with finite and rapidly dwindling resources. Resilience depletion If you know anything about the experience of war and those who are called to fight them, you understand that even a well-trained, stress-hardened warfighter can only take so much. War is like a boxing match, but with no referee in the ring, and no limit to the number of rounds. In fact, there's no end to any round, it's one continuous round. There's no opportunity for a mend-your-wounds break or for rehydration or catching your breath and a cooling drench of water. In such a relentless war, it's not difficult to imagine that no matter how strong or resilient you started out, with the stress intense enough and prolonged enough, 100% of participants will be beaten. And that's what we have in the present epidemic. No end in sight. For frontline clinicians, there's no end. It's a continuous state of emergency. Not only that, it's one that shows signs of worsening. And like other deadly infections, Evolving, to overcome anything we can medically throw at it. And you have an ongoing worry that you yourself will succumb to the pandemic illness, perhaps like a colleague you've known. The the illness that you're relentlessly fighting. Or perhaps even that you'll unknowingly carry the lethal strain of this infection home to those you love resentment, and vicarious regret. Because so many caregivers know the beneficial effects of the vaccines and the prophylactic mask, hand-washing, and social distancing protocols, it's not difficult to understand why they might feel extremely miffed that patients continue to flood their hospitals who've not only gotten, uh, not gotten vaccinated, and not exercise well-validated prophylactic protocols but who have actively been defiant in their refusal and now these people arrive in droves having resisted vaccination and social prophylactic measures not because of a medical contraindication Or a rationally grounded reservation about the safety of the vaccines, but because of commercially driven, manipulated alarmism, propelling opposition for the sake of opposition, and worse, enrobing it with the star and striped fabric of patriotism. Duty to treat. It's not difficult to imagine the unspoken internal dialogue that a caregiver might have as we are now well into the second year of this very home-front war. It's almost as if your patients had already been explicitly told not to play in a certain field because it was known to be dangerous and loaded with mines. And Now they come in with their limbs blown off and in anguish, demanding that you repair them or as if you've been on duty as a lifeguard and had effortfully posted signs all along the beach that you can't go into the ocean because of life-threatening riptides and deadly undertows, But now entire crowds stream over the sand dunes, defying your warnings, and go for their swim simply because they insist they have a right to. And suddenly, they're all drowning, gasping for breath, screaming for your help, being pulled by the powerful undertow you warned them about. As a lifeguard, you might find yourself questioning, why should I put my life in danger to rescue these people who chose to ignore my multiple warnings? Alas... Clinicians do not have the option of not treating someone. Compassion does not come easily, nor, for that matter, does eagerness to give it your all yet once again. You feel hurt and angry and disregarded. You're not especially heartened by their sudden come-to-Jesus, I-should-have-gotten-the-shot conversion war-weariness. So to understand this complex psychological stress phenomenon affecting caregivers, it's important to recognize that there's a profound war-weariness with its recurring psychological trauma plus physical and psychological exhaustion. And underneath, an anger that those who could have done something to take care of themselves and those who lead them, who could have encouraged them to do so, didn't. And now, they not only burden the already stress-maxed treaters and facilities, but newly exposed them to an even more lethal variant of this mutating virus that would have never emerged had appropriate containment been achieved earlier through widespread vaccination, temporary sheltering in place, and easily enacted transmission prevention protocols. Face shield, heart shields, and soul shields, self-protective detachment. As you yourself might experience, many caregiving clinicians feel exhausted and have had to emotionally detach and distance themselves from their patient's plight simply to get through the day. They feel the enormous grief that accompanies the sense of helplessness in the face of an invisible pathogen wreaking havoc on their patient's a relentless physiological assault that their training neither prepared them for nor has any quick cure for. But dedicated and even with diminishing resilience that they feel, they keep showing up for work, their work of healing, seeing yet A newer stream of patients, this time around younger, and thought to have been more resilient and illness-resistant, but alas, another failed hope in the face of a rapidly mutating lethal virus. And despite their best intent to continue to care deeply and attend fully to every one of their patients, their capacity to provide fully in the ways that they're accustomed to just is not there. That giving, giving, giving simply can't go on forever. Eventually, something gives and you stop giving. Think of a time when you were running low on your own emotional reserve. Say you've got a colicky infant and A needy spouse, and a demanding boss. And they're all doing their noxious demanding thing all at the same time. What do you do? Well, the vast majority of us just try to hunker down and cope, to navigate the competing needs of all, while holding in our own anger and hurt, putting aside our needs for a meal, water, a bathroom break, and we attend to the urgency of the moment. But, as we all know, that takes a toll. That giving, giving, giving can't go on forever. Eventually, something gives, and you stop giving. And not even voluntary, it just happens. Is a form, I believe, of unconscious emotional ecology in the service of psychological self-preservation. The moral injury of being sucked dry by an indifferent, demanding system. But you can't get over that. No matter how much effort you put in to stay the course, it feels like, your patients, your boss, or the higher ups, or the whole system is sucking you dry, that they don't really care what you feel. That they don't that they they just need you to get your patient care work done. And if you put up any resistance or happen to manifest irritability, you risk getting written up. Labeled as having poor bedside manner, or not being a team player. And you're really bent out of shape at the fact that the people you've devoted your professional life to caring for, with hard-earned skill and compassion, have become rude, demanding, argumentative. Not all of them, but enough to sour your day, one day after another and make you feel like you've been betrayed, stabbed in the back by the very people you strove to work for and help. Encroaching helplessness and hopelessness. And you feel increasingly glum, alternately overcome with intense feelings of anger, worry, sadness, hurt, other times, completely numb to any feeling at all. You even feel guilty for feeling this way. You wonder if it's worthwhile at all, all this whole medical career. But meanwhile, you continue to plot ahead, doing your best to do your healthcare work, but feeling like your body, heart, and soul are so beaten up and numb. And it overwhelms you when you sense that this doesn't feel like it's getting any better, that it will get worse, and that it could go on indefinitely. Now I ask, is this burnout, compassion fatigue, moral injury? In short, the answer is yes. It's got components of all three, and perhaps even more. If we expanded the differential diagnosis, that's the term we use in medicine to propose several diagnostic hypotheses about what might be going on with these symptoms, we ought to include situational grief, trauma, and PTSD and the clinical syndromes of depression and anxiety, which are classed as mental illnesses. We also ought to include litigation stress and the impact of that. And we'll cover these in part three. What's crucially important here is to understand that for many clinicians, there's a confluence, a gathering of psychological phenomena all going on concurrently. There's not one syndrome that encompasses all of these experiences. It's a chaotic stress mix of multiple components and a physiological and psychological cascade producing intense feelings, cumulatively eroding the clinician's resilience. But given our training and our desire to wrap in as many symptoms into a definable, nameable syndrome, the diagnostician amongst us, be they the therapist or the coach, tend to want to give it all a single label because it's convenient that way, a label of, say, burnout or it's depression or it's moral injury. And I would caution after 25 years of experience in this arena that doing so will limit the success of these clinicians and these therapists' well-intentioned efforts to be helpful. It'll delay optimal treatment or perhaps even enable mistreatment and perhaps even doom their efforts to failure. In part two... We'll examine the first three syndromes in more detail of the uh, Clinician Distress Matrix. Burnout, Compassion Fatigue, and Moral Injury. So if you're really interested in delving into the nitty-gritty of what each of these syndromes really is, I encourage you to stay tuned. And as always on the Physician Interrupted blog, I truly welcome your comments and your sharing of this piece. And I would love to hear from you if you feel that there's something that's missing or something that I'm fundamentally mistaken on or that you deeply disagree with. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with part two in a moment.